Well, this is what happens. We start to get down to the, you know, um, the remnant. The remnant remains, the elect. So um, as we get to the end, <laughs> closer we get to Thanksgiving. Um, all right, let me, uh, let me pray and we'll get started. Father, we're thankful for this morning, for the chance to gather and to consider your word together. Um, to consider the way that you've spoken We recognize that you are the king, you have created all things and you rule them, and that we ought to listen to your word and not um, competing voices. We pray that we would, that we would fear you and walk in your commandments, that you'd be honored in it. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so we're going to continue in Proverbs 10, this section I want to remind you, though, of what I've been reminding you of, um, that there is no um, movement in biblical theology in these sections in as much as you're not furthering the story. So in the wisdom literature of Proverbs, you're not furthering the story of the Bible. However, you are learning about what it means to be those who are in God's kingdom, right, who walk in his kingdom and do so wisely. I want to review that briefly um, and kind of pick up on maybe a theme, um, at least if you go to Sovereign Grace, you'll hear me talk about it on Sunday, which is that when God finishes creating all things um, in Genesis 2, Genesis 2, two after he's completed his creation, says, um, and God rested. Um, that word Shabbat um, literally means he sat down, right? He took his seat. Um, and if you pick up on Isaiah 66, 1, um, the heavens are his throne and the earth is his footstool. Uh, the idea being he's created this cosmic temple and he takes the seat as king to rule and reign. You hear the same kind of language with regard to Jesus. After making purification for sins, Hebrews 1, 3, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. He now rules and reigns over the new creation. Um, and so you hear that kind of language. Well, he sits down as king to rule, um, and he mediates his rule through Adam and Eve, through these vice regents, right, um, and who are supposed to subdue the earth. He gives them commands. And then, um, so that's the first voice they hear, if you will. It's not that Adam and Eve are unable to, um, on the basis of the things that have been made, observe what's been made and and um, make good decisions. I mean, they walk with God. But he gives them a command specifically related to the covenant that he makes with man. He makes a covenant with man. Um, and if you want to walk with me, uh, etc., this is how you're going to do it. And if you sin in this way, you're going to be kicked out of my presence. So you guys know, um, you're, and you're going to die. You guys know that. Don't eat from the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. There's a competing voice that comes in, in Genesis 3, and tries to get them to listen to um, him instead, who is Satan, right? I, I point at that because throughout the rest of Scripture, we're going to hear about these, if you will, two voices um, that speak. One being uh, the voice of wisdom of the Lord. The other being uh, the voice of foolishness uh, or Satan's voice. The voice that is sinful. And as God's people, we're supposed to walk in the fear of the Lord and heed his voice, right? 
heed his voice. So we see that again and again, and we see it in the wisdom literature emphasized. So before we continue in Proverbs, just go back to Job really quickly and look at Job 1. This is emphasized in the wisdom literature over and over again. Job 1, and look at verse 8. And the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job, that there is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man who what? Fears God and turns away from evil. Um, He fears the Lord and he turns away from evil. This becomes an emphasis um, with regard to the life of Job. Now, um, it's said again in Job, but look over at um, be, go, look over at Ecclesiastes briefly. Ecclesiastes. So we can see, we haven't done this book yet, but we will after Proverbs. Um, so we'll pick this up in January. Ecclesiastes. But look at the very end of Ecclesiastes. Ecclesiastes twelve. <laughs> You guys know which text I'm going to point to? Verse 13. The end of the matter, all has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. Are you guys hearing an emphasis now? Okay, in the wisdom literature. Go to to Psalm 1. Um, We'll see the two voices there, and then Psalm 2 we'll hear it again. Especially in light of the language I said about, about a king who's ruling Psalm 1, blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked. So there's a wicked counsel or a foolish counsel, nor stands in the way of sinners or sits in the seat of scoffers. This is the same group. But his delight is in what? The law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. That's the, that's the, lang- the, the voice he's listening to. He's listening to God and, and his commandments. His, his, his delight is in his king and what his king has to say and not what the fools say. Now notice, the nations rage against that, and then we're told that God laughs at them and has set his king on Zion, his holy hill. Now notice verse 11 of Psalm 2. Um, Serve the Lord with what? Fear. And rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son lest he be angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. Now you're going to hear about the fear of the Lord a lot in the Psalter. We hear about it again, now look at Proverbs 1, Proverbs 1, as we look and are reminded of this whole section of Proverbs, Proverbs 1 through 9, which lays this out for us, look at Proverbs 1, 7, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, fools despise wisdom and instruction. And then look at Proverbs 9 just so we can see the sort of inclusio around this whole section. Verse 10. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and the knowledge of the Holy One is insight. What what are you guys picking up um, as we go through this? The wise man, um, what's the orientation of his heart and mind? He fears the Lord. And if he fears the Lord, that it's demonstrated in what? It's, so it's demonstrated in two, really two things, but, but I'll, I'll pick up obedience because it's, it's what is inferred in the language of listen, right? They listen to 
God's voice. They listen to God's voice, not the voice of the fools, not Satan's voice, not the voice of the world, not the voice of their sinful flesh. They listen to the voice of the Lord. And you know, I I think uh, listen is the most helpful word because it, it involves both hearing what God says and then picking up on Joshua's point, obeying what God says. It's you guys know what this is like. I've pointed this out before. When you um, tell your child, if you have a child, tell your child, listen to me, you don't just mean hear the words come from my mouth and reverberate in your eardrum, right? You mean actually not just decode the words I'm saying, but do what I'm saying, right? And, And so this is what the wise man does. He listens to the king, right? He listens to him. He doesn't listen to the competing voices. He listens to him. Um, this is going to be given actually in the new covenant promise. So, so look real quickly at Jeremiah 32. Jeremiah 32. The new covenant is picked up in Jeremiah 31 and Jeremiah 32. <clears throat> And look at verse 37. After talking about the end of their exile under Babylon, he says this, verse 37 of Jeremiah 32, Behold, I will gather them from all the countries to which I drove them in my anger and my wrath and in great indignation. I will bring them back to this place and I will make them dwell in safety. And they shall be my people and I will be their God. That is the central promise of the covenant of grace. That's it. That's the stuff of it. Okay, I'm going to come back to this again because I think sometimes people divide promises and covenants and that's a real serious error. To take promises and say that's something distinct from a covenant is a significant error. Why do I say that? Um, if, if, if you ask the question when you get married, what is the covenant that you made? You, you all have been to a wedding. If you're not even married, you've been to one, uh, most likely. Two people stand up at an altar, and they get married. What is the substance of their covenant? The vows. That's their covenant. They made promises to each other. You know, the marriage covenant is made up of promises you make to each other. That is the covenant, right? The ring is not the covenant. That's, that's a sign to remind me I'm in a covenant. You guys follow me on that? Okay. But that's not the covenant. I'm not like, I took off my ring. I'm unmarried now. I put it on. Now I'm married again. You know, that's not how it works, right? Okay. Um, the, 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 the substance of the covenant is the promises. And, and here's what he's saying. I, they shall be my people and I'll be their God. That's the substance. You hear it all the way through. It's actually all the way into Re- Revelation 21. And then you hear this. Look, I will give them one heart and one way that they may what? Verse 39 of Jeremiah 32. I will give them one heart and one way that they may fear me forever. For their own good and the good of their children after them. We won't spend any time on why children are brought up here in the new covenant promises. But look at verse 40. I will make with them an everlasting covenant that I will not turn away from doing good to them. And I will put the what? Fear of me in their hearts, that they may not turn from me. Um, so, so note what's being given broadly in the new covenant. What's given, being given broadly in the new covenant is what? The fear of the Lord. 
So we'll actually hear that reverberate in Acts. I believe it's Acts 9 that the church was walking in the fear of the Lord. They were walking in the fear of the Lord. I emphasize this just because I want to keep coming back to this notion that, um, and the reason I brought up a king is because we have a king. So my, my daughter asked me the other day a really good question um, that is popular among young people she knows. She has two little things that they say. She says, hey, Dad, my, my friends say that Abba Father means Daddy or Dad, but that seems irreverent to me to call God Daddy or Dad, not Father. Well, first, I want to say this. It does not mean Daddy or Dad. Abba does not mean that. If you've heard that, that's just mythology that's passed around in evangelical circles, it, it does mean father, but it means father in the sense that he's your father and you're his children, but it's a reverent word. It is not a word that makes him somehow um, like your buddy. That it's, it's, it's still quite reverent. It, the proper English translation is not daddy. It's still father, like who's your daddy, right? Exactly. But that's what they're doing, Ron, actually, which is making the whole thing pretty irreverent. He is the king of creation. He is, he, he, he is your father in the sense of more than just being the father of all who, cre- uh, who created all. Um, so you pick up Abba Father that says that he's your father in the sense that you're adopted children. So that's true. So there's a nearness to him uh, relationally by covenant. You guys follow me on that? That emphasis is true. Uh, but it's not this diminishing of his king. The other one is, well, Jesus says he's our friend. Is that true? Sure. I no longer, you know, I'm referring to you as the servants, but as friends. And so my friends say, or people I know say, Jesus is my homie. Is that appropriate? It doesn't seem appropriate to me. I said, it's not appropriate. It's entirely irreverent. Yes, he's your friend. Just like a king could be referred to as your friend. If you had a king, you wouldn't walk into his palace, even if you were not his enemy, but his friend. In other words, someone to whom he was kind, who had a positive relationship. You wouldn't walk into his palace and say, hey, homie, right? You wouldn't do that because you recognize he's your king. I get after this because when I say what it means to be a Christian, we have a familial relationship with the Lord by adoption in Christ in the spirit, but he's our king, Yes, our father, yes, our brother, but we fear him like we fear a king. The kind of reverence that you would give to the voice of a king. If he said, do this, you wouldn't look over at the court jester and say, do you have any suggestions different from the king's? But essentially what Proverbs is putting before you is the notion that you as a loyal servant, as a friend, as an adopted son of the king, come into the palace, and you hear two voices. The king speaks to you, and the court jester speaks to you, the fool. And, and, the, fool is the, and the, the foolish man is the one who's listening to the court jester, not the king. Follow me? Okay. That, that's, and, and the flow of scripture is essentially um, people continue to listen to the court jester. They keep listening to the foolish voice because they don't fear the king. They don't fear him. Um, They fear something else more, right? So Proverbs um, 10, we're picking up there on the fear of the Lord and these two voices that we listen to. 
the Proverbs of Solomon. Now, when we get into Proverbs 10, 1 through 22, 16, I've just labeled this the Proverbs of Solomon. Why? Because look at 10, 1. The Proverbs of Solomon. Easy enough. Okay. So it's a very creative title that I've come up with there. The Proverbs of Solomon. <laughs> um, we'll go through 22.16. The reason we go through 22.16 is look over there at 22.16 briefly. 22.16. Um, it ends that section. How do I know that? Look at verse 17. Incline your ear and hear the words of who? The wise. So now we've moved on to these kind of words of the wise, not Solomon. So we'll, um, and we'll see more of the words of the wise and of a couple other guys who write in Proverbs um, besides Solomon from 22, 17 and following. But in, in 10, 1 through 22, 16, we're looking at the Proverbs of Solomon. Um, now these, these Proverbs are different. Remember I told you in, in 1 through 9, you're getting these instructions on the two ways, sort of the two voices. The two ways, etc. You, 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 the wise voice, the, the godly voice that you hear if you fear the Lord, or the foolish voice that you hearken to if you don't fear the Lord, right? Um, the wise way, that's the path you're on if you're listening to the wise advice, or the foolish way. Those two things are laid out um, quite clearly. They're laid out both in um, the language of a father, um, counseling the son in the home, and um, through the idea of lady wisdom crying out on the streets, right? I'm telling you about these two ways. Now, when we get to chapter 10, um, there's also a foolish woman, Lady Folly, and an adulterous woman who tries to bring you into her house. That's the other side of the equation, right? Um, but when we come to 10, now we're going to get these kind, of, these kind of quicker proverbs. You guys know what I mean. They have these antithetical sayings. Notice that um, Proverbs 10, 1 through 15, 33, I said, antithetical sayings. Um, you guys know what an antithesis is? What is it? I mean, I'm, just, I'm saying antithetical, like everybody knows what I mean when I say that. Well, let's, let's break it down. What's a thesis? Okay, a thesis is a statement of fact that you're, you're going to argue for. And generally when you make a thesis... You guys know this, you write essays, right? Um, if you haven't, let me give you a little clue to writing an essay. Generally, when you write, a, write, a, write an essay or a, th- a thesis, you have, and I'm going to make it as simple as I can, you have um, your topic, what you're talking about, and your assertion, what you're saying about what you're talking about, right? So your topic, here's, here's, here's my topic, D, okay, there's... I'm talking about D, right? There you go. Now, I say, is, is a remarkable man because he still rides a horse, you know, et cetera. I can say just D is a remarkable man. And then I can, there's my topic and my assertion. And now I can go on and say, why? Well, he's still an engineer full time. He still rides a horse. You say, what difference does that make? He's over 70, right? I don't do, the, I'm not going to ride a horse and I'm not even 50. So you guys follow me on that? Um, so you start to talk about that kind of thing, you can just start making your argument. Well, with a, that's very simplistic, I understand. But what, with a thesis, you have a topic and an assertion. You're, you're, you're saying something. Um, so you're talking about something, and you're saying something about that thing. So think about this. Um, with a topic and assertion, you're going to see a lot of them, um, these theses. 
and then you're going to hear the opposite, and that's called an antithesis, antithesis right? It's like it's something opposed to your thesis, if you will, or the opposite of. Um, so, so let's look there at how those show up. Um, I told you that the, the theme is coming up here. The fear of the Lord and wise living bring hope in the pilgrimage of this present life. That's what's being focused on. Um, the, the theme is that the fear of the Lord and wise living bring hope, bring hope in the pilgrimage of this life. So look there. A wise son makes a glad father. Okay? So I'm talking about a wise son. Um, and that's my topic, if you will. And here's my assertion. He makes a glad father. Now here comes my... You guys see the thesis there in the first line? Now here comes the antithesis. But a foolish son is a sorrow to his mother. Um, you, 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 you can't even know how true that little proverb is, and so you start, start raising kids, right? Uh, when you have a wise kid, makes a glad father. When you have a foolish kid, sorrow to his mother, right? Um, there's your antithesis. Um, you're going to keep seeing those, so let's, let's look at, um, that's, that's an example. Let's look at another one. Treasures gained by wickedness do not profit. So your topic, treasures gained by wickedness, your assertion, they do not profit. Um, here comes the antithesis, but righteousness delivers from death. You guys hearing the contrast? So these are all antithetical or contrastive sayings. That's what this whole section is just filled with, is these kind of quick bursts of, here's a thesis, here's the antithesis. Here's a thesis, here's the antithesis. Or, or here are the contrastive sayings. And those, the thesis and antithesis, or the... The contrastive saying is driving you at there's two voices or two ways to live. One is in the fear of the Lord and it's wise. The other is not in the fear of the Lord and it's foolish. Right? And they both bring different kinds of fruit about in life. So I I bring that up just as we're looking at these. You've got to keep hearing it this way. Uh, and, And this is what we focused on. While wisdom, I don't know if you can see that, it's too small. While wisdom will be shown to bear good fruit in temporary benefits of the present life, it will. Like there are places where it'll say, look, if, you're, if you go to the ant, you sluggard, right? If you're lazy, you know, you go to the ant and, and you work hard and, and it'll talk about how the hardworking man is going to get, going to get the, the, the fruit of his labor, right? So we'll talk about wisdom uh, bearing good fruit in temporary benefits for the present life. Um, or if you know if you if you learn to hold your tongue, then people think more highly of you than if you're constantly babbling like a fool, right? And so you hear this kind of language. Um, but then it says, but here's what I'm saying: while that's true, the focus in this section is upon the eternal benefit of peace and hope it brings. Um, in other words, the focus in this section is not on the fact that you're getting temporary benefits for wisdom. It does bring them up. But sometimes you're not getting any temporary benefits for wisdom in this section. Sometimes you're just getting pain and suffering for being wise. And the point is not, yeah, yeah, it can bring, it can bring uh, temporary benefits. But the point is it brings eternal peace and hope. Right? The wise man just eternally, uh, he, he's kind of at rest in the Lord. He, he trusts him and um, has eternal peace and hope. Now, a wise man is set apart by his fear of the Lord. 
And I, I put there, which leads to humility. You're going to see all these laid out. A wise man set apart by the fear of the Lord, which leads to humility. And by humility, I mean he's the man who uh, listens to the Lord and not himself and who seeks the good of his neighbor above his own. You guys hear that? In other words, so you can hear the two tables of the law there. You guys know what I mean by the two tables of the law? Right? The first table is what, Cutter? First four commandments. Good. So and they're all the, those kind of vertical commandments, the commandments toward God, loving God. And, then, and the second table? What's that? They're toward man. So the next six, toward man, okay? So love God, love your neighbor. And what I'm saying is, if you fear the Lord, you're humble. And if you're humble, then, you, then it really shows up in two ways. You listen to the Lord rather than any other competing voice, namely your, your own. And you seek the good of the other above yourself. You can hear the two tables coming up there, can't you? Um, okay, that's what humility ends up looking like. So a wise man... Is set apart by the fear of the Lord, which leads to humility, hard work. Um, if you fear the Lord, you work hard. Well, why do I say that? You're going to see that in the Proverbs. But why is that true? Why is, why is one who fears... I'm not saying that every hardworking man fears the Lord. Do not misunderstand me. Uh, that's not what I said. Right? We can flip these things on their heads and make them mean something they don't mean. It's not true every hardworking man fears the Lord. But why does the man who fears the Lord work hard? That's, that's exactly right, Tim. So like the parable of the servants, that the good servants make use, good use of what the Lord or their master has given them, right? In that parable, it's, it's the sense in which you recognize all things I have come from the Lord. He's placed me here. He's given me this thing to do. And so I'm going to do it as unto the Lord. I'm going to do it to please him. So I work hard at it. I'm not lazy. I'm not taking advantage of my employer, um, which is, by the way, a kind of theft, like I don't think we think about that, but it's a kind of theft to take advantage of your employer because you're stealing his time. He's paying you for that, right? Um, so you're not thinking very thoughtful of him um, or her, whoever your employer happens to be. Um, you're not particularly thoughtful of honoring the Lord who gave you that vocation, right? Um, so you're, you're, he's, he's hardworking. If he fears the Lord, he's humble. In other words, he listens to God and he seeks the good of the other above his own. He's hardworking. There's a willingness to receive counsel. Now that's going to that's gonna tuck into this issue of humility, right? It's a little bit of a, almost a repeat. You're willing to receive counsel from wise men, right? You're, you're willing to. You're not, you're not afraid to hear hard things. Um, you're willing to receive them if you fear the Lord. Um, I, I don't mean you like hearing hard things, right? Uh, but you're, 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 you, you essentially invite it. I want wise counsel. You seek wise counsel. Um, it, there's a lot of people who seek counsel. There's this wisdom in a multitude of counselors, and they think that just means I gather all the people to myself who are going to tell me what I already wanted to hear. Have you guys ever interacted with the, that, that person? So here, here's what I mean by that. They keep meeting with the people who are already going to tell them the conclusion they want. Um, and they don't meet with the people who are going to tell them the conclusion they don't want. Um, it, it, it becomes silly. Um, integrity, you fear the Lord, you have integrity. He's going to talk about that. What, what is it to have integrity? 
Okay, so you do what's right when no one's looking, when people are looking and when they're not looking. Um, uh, you, you guys know we use integrity outside of the language of morality. What, what, where else do we use it? Structural integrity. Thanks, Josh. What, what does structural integrity have to do with, the, with our moral use of integrity? Doing what we're made to do, right? And holding up. Good. Um, justice. The man who fears the Lord is just. He's going to talk about that. Um, he seeks justice. He, he doesn't seek um, dishonest measures, right? He's not trying to rob somebody. He's the kind of man who pays his employees fairly. He's not trying to enrich them himself at their expense um, or who cares for people rightly. He's just. And the fear of the Lord is a man who, the man who fears the Lord guards his heart and tongue. That's going to be a huge issue that's going to come up. He guards his heart and tongue. Why do I put those two things together? Yeah, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. Now, Jesus says that, but actually Jesus is quoting Solomon when he says it, right? Out of the, he often is quoting the Bible, just in case you guys didn't know. Um, he, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. And so the man who has, is wise, he guards his heart and his tongue, right? Um, he, he, he does both. All right, so that's the man who fears the Lord. So we'll see that in these Proverbs. Um, let's, let's look at a few of them. Look at Proverbs. Um, the other, oh, last one. The wise man does not keep company with fools. That, that's the last thing I wanted to say before we look at Proverbs 12. The wise man does not keep company with fools, nor heed their wicked counsel. His, 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 his close friends are not foolish people. In other words, his, his close friends are not people. I know this is... It's popular to say if you want to do evangelism, you have to be best friends with unbelievers. But the wise man does not um, keep counsel or company with fools. His friends are not the people who heed the voice of the world. Those not his close companions. His close companions are wise people. In other words, those who also fear the Lord. And that doesn't mean you don't befriend unbelievers and reach them, but they aren't the people who are sticking closer to you than a brother and um, whispering, because they're going to always be whispering in your ear, right? Um, you, so you're, you're wanting to keep counsel with wise men. So look at Proverbs 12. We'll just look at this text as a, as a kind of example text. We could go through any of these, but um, I'll go a little bit in 13, 14, and 15, but let's especially look at 12. By the way, um, just before you look at 12.1, look at 11.30. The fruit of the righteous is a what? Tree of life. I mean, there, there it is again. You guys, I told you that already in Proverbs, so I won't keep pointing that out. It comes up more than once um, that this is where life is found. But let's look at Proverbs 12.1 and we'll read this. Whoever loves discipline loves knowledge, but he who hates reproof is stupid. Right? Okay. Um, it, apparently it is okay to refer to someone as stupid because here the Proverbs are doing it. You, if you love discipline, then you love knowledge. But if you hate reproof, you are stupid. Um, this is talking about the kind of, the kind of knowledge that, that is the knowledge that belongs to those who fear the Lord, right? Um, a good man obtains favor from the Lord, but a man of evil, uh, evil devices, he condemns. No one is established by wickedness, but the root of the righteous will never be moved. No, notice wickedness never establishes you, but, but righteousness 
roots you in, if you will. So it goes on. An excellent wife is the crown of her husband. I have an excellent wife. That is absolutely true, right? The crown of her husband. Look at the next phrase. But she who brings shame is like rottenness in his bones. Um, if, if, if a wife is one who brings shame to her husband continually or is difficult, um, then it's, it's not a crown for her husband, but like rottenness in his bones. Um, the, the thoughts of the righteous are just. The counsels of the wicked are deceitful. The words of the wicked lie in wait for blood, but the mouth of the upright delivers them. The wicked are overthrown and are no more, but the house of the righteous will stand. A man is commended according to his good sense, but one of twisted mind is despised. Better to be lowly. It's one of my, uh, some of my favorite ones coming up here. Better to be lowly and have a servant than to play the great man and lack bread. Whoever is righteous has regard for the life of his beast, but the mercy of the wicked is cruel. Uh, whoever works his land will have plenty of bread, but he who follows worthless pursuits lacks sense. Whoever is wicked covets the spoil of evildoers, but the root of the righteous bears fruit. An evil man is ensnared by the transgression of his lips, but the righteous escapes from trouble. From the fruit of his mouth a man is satisfied with good, and the work of a man's hand comes back to him. The way of a fool is right in his own eyes, but a wise man listens to advice. Um, this comes up quite a bit when you're giving people advice. They're constantly asking for advice and never taking it, right? They've already predetermined their conclusion. They come. Uh, Josh like, gets paid like 150 bucks an hour, or used to anyway, for people to come and ask him essentially at some point for advice. He would give it to them. They would give him his money and, and not take it. And then they would come back the next week and give him their money again and get advice from him again and not take it. Um, and that, that's, that's one way to, <laughs> to do it. People just do that. They do it. And actually, some people so don't want advice counter to what they already want to hear that they would fire Josh, if you will, and go find a counselor who will give them the advice they already wanted to hear, in which case you wonder why pay the 150 bucks an hour to go see a guy to hear the voice that already reverberates in your head. Um, that is the reason you're, you're there. But that's, in fact, what constantly happens. It happens in pastoral ministry as well, right? People come in, they want advice or wisdom because their life is a mess. Um, you give it to them, and it doesn't take very long before you realize they have no intention of taking any of this. Um, they already know what they're going to do. They're going to continue to do what they've always done, which led them to the place that they currently are, right? Um, the vexation of a fool is known at once. But the prudent ignores an insult. Whoever speaks the truth gives honest advice, but a false witness utters, or honest evidence, sorry, but a false witness utters deceit. There is one whose rash words are like thor sword thrusts, but the tongue of the wise brings healing. So notice we're getting into this person who's kind of um, rash. He goes on, truthful lips endure forever. But a lying tongue is but for a moment. Deceit is in the heart of those who devise evil, but those who plan peace have joy. No ill befalls the righteous, but the wicked are filled with trouble. Lying lips are an abomination to the Lord, but those who act faithfully are his delight. A prudent man conceals knowledge, but the heart of, the fool, of fools proclaims folly. 
The hand of the diligent will rule, while the slothful will be put to forced labor. Anxiety in a man's heart weighs him down, but a good word makes him glad. One who is righteous is a guide to his neighbor, but the way of the wicked leads them astray. Whoever is slothful will not roast his game, but the diligent man will get precious wealth. In the path of righteousness is life, and in its pathway there is no death. You hear these very strong, contrasting, or um, antithetical sort of sayings. Notice they are very positive with regard to who the, what the righteous man or the, the man who fears the Lord, the man who heeds wise counsel, receives. He seems to receive all benefit, doesn't he? Like he won't die, his house will be established, he'll, he'll, not, he'll roast his game, he'll be rich, right? All, all things will be going well for him. Um, now, this can't possibly, in the context of Proverbs or anywhere else in the Bible, mean that the wise man always has life going well for him, right? Um, what, what he's getting at is um, this general sense that it's a path of life and peace and hope. That, that's the path that you're on. Um, you will, you'll not die. That's, that's, that's not a, you will die, right? I don't care how wise you are. So, so what could he possibly be getting at there? When he says at the end, in the path of righteousness is life, and in its pathway there is no death. Yeah, it, it, it really seems to be getting at this notion that righteousness was always going to deliver life and wickedness always going to deliver death. Um, and, and, and in other words, that's principially true. The problem is, is that none of us are righteous. No, not one, right? And so death comes for us all, but Christ is righteous, and in him we have life, right? And we walk in him. Um, apart from him, we, have, we know death. Um, you, you guys follow that? But it's, it's, it's getting at these more um, eternally, if you will, principially true um, kind of wisdom and outcomes. It's not, it's not getting at just all of the things that happen in life being exactly the way you want them to. Look at Proverbs 13 and, and verse 13. Drop down to verse 13. See some more of this kind of thing. I'm just picking out examples in this section of these antithesis. Whoever despises the word brings destruction on himself, but he who reveres the commandment will be rewarded. This, this comes back to Joshua's initial point when I said, when we talked about the, the way of wisdom, um, the person who's, who listens, who fears the Lord is obedient. He obeys. And that's exactly what he's saying here. Whoever despises the word brings destruction on himself, but he who reveres the commandment will be rewarded. Like destruction and reward there can't just be about what's happening in day-to-day life because if you look at a psalm like Psalm 73, here's Asaph saying, why are the wicked fat and sleek and have all the things going for them and I'm over here and life stinks for me and I'm obedient, right? And then he considers the end of all things. And he sees where destruction has come, right? Um, so it goes on. The teaching of the wise is a fountain of life that one may turn away from the snares of death. Good sense wins favor, but the way of the treacherous is their ruin. In everything the prudent acts with knowledge, but a fool flaunts his folly. Boy, isn't that the truth in our current moment? 
A wicked messenger falls into trouble, but a faithful envoy brings healing. Poverty and disgrace come to him who ignores instruction, but whoever heeds reproof is honored. A desire fulfilled is sweet to the soul, but to turn away from evil is an abomination to fools. Whoever walks with the wise becomes wise, but the companion of fools will suffer harm. Right? You're not walking in the way of the wicked, nor standing in the council, their council or sitting in their seat. Whoever walks with the wise becomes wise, but the companion of fools will suffer harm. Disaster pursues sinners, but the righteous are rewarded with good. A good man leaves an inheritance to his children's children, but the sinner's wealth is laid up for the righteous. Um, the, the point of this proverb, by the way, I, I hear it used a lot in financial dealings, that, that if you really are wise, then you will have an inheritance that's significant enough for your grandchildren. That's not the point of the proverb. He's not giving you financial advice about your savings account. It's not what's happening here. What's he saying? Yeah, there, there seems to be a sense in which, which um, the good man is leaving behind a kind of legacy. I think that's, I think that's right, D. He's, he's leaving behind a kind of legacy. Yeah, it may. The good man may leave behind wealth. That may be what he leaves behind that blesses his grandchildren. But the fact is, is he's leaving behind um, a life that blesses his children and grandchildren. Right? He's lived in such a way that his, grandchildren, his children and grandchildren are blessed by it. So you think about, okay, so we come back to the, 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 the um, Ten Commandments um, when he talks about um, these, man who, these men who walk in the way of the Lord. One of the promises that is what? You guys remember? If you, if you, if you walk in wickedness, you, I'm coming back to the law, the Mosaic Covenant. Remember the warnings about who God is? What, what happens if a man loves God, what, what does it say is true for his children? Yeah, they're blessed for thousands of generations, right? And if he's wicked, yeah, there's, there's like, it's like, you know, he's, he's going to visit the iniquity on their children's children, right? Uh, and so this is the opposite kind of language of that. Um, he's not visiting the iniquity of the fathers on their children's children here. He's visiting, the, he, he's, he's blessing the children of, of, the, of the good man and the grandchildren of the good man. It's kind of a reversal of the wicked man whose who's iniqu- who's iniquity will be visited on his children's children. You guys, you guys follow there? Okay. Um, the, good, the good man's uh, family will be blessed in, in a number of ways is what he's getting at. And that just tends to be true. You pass things down to your kids. That now, proverbially true. Okay. You understand what I mean by that? Um, it's in principle, it's generally true. Generally true. Uh, so um, you can see that, by the way. I've, I can I can see that just in the fact that there are there are several there are, there's more than one man in here in a multi generational family business. Somebody worked hard and it got passed down, and it'll probably get passed down again. You, you guys follow me on that? Same thing happens. Some of you had godly parents or were godly parents, and now you have godly kids or godly grandchildren. Like, and you just see the blessings of that passed down, right? Um, okay, so if, if you grew up in a godly home, 
um, and you've been blessed because of that, then, then you should be thank, thankful that your dad or grandfather, whoever, was a good man, right? Um, the fallow ground of the poor would yield much food, but it is swept away through injustice. Whoever spares the rod hates his son, but he who loves him is diligent to discipline him. The righteous has enough to satisfy his appetite, but the belly of the wicked suffers want, <laughs> right? Um, the, he's, the wicked are never, are never satisfied is the point. Um, again, there's, there's even the kind of proverbial language to the father. If, you're, if, you love your son, if, if you love your son, you're diligent to discipline him. If you, if you, if you hate him, um, then you're the guy who spares the rod, there, there is a kind of um, hatred in sparing the rod, by the way, with children. There's a kind of hatred in that because you have no regard for um, they, they, teaching them that bad choices are painful, right? Um, and if you don't, I'm going to come back to this, guys. When a kid is five and he makes a bad choice and he receives some painful outcome of that bad choice, that bad choice he made is probably not devastating to his life. When the child is 25 and he's making bad choices and he didn't learn as a child that bad choices lead to pain, the bad choices he's making at 25 can be life-devastating, life-ending sort of choices, if you follow me. Um, if you don't have that in mind in doing the difficult work of disciplining, then he's saying you're hating your son. You're not actually caring about your child right? Um, okay. So it goes on. Proverbs 14. Look over there really briefly. 26 and 27. Um, I just wanted to pick this language up because it's here. In the fear of the Lord, one has strong confidence and his children will have a refuge. That's interesting language, isn't it? Um, if you walk in the fear of the Lord, you have strong confidence. And what do your children have? A refuge. There's this, this kind of um, place the society, the young people in our society are running around looking for safe spaces right now. Um, and, and one wonders how much of that is driven by the fact that they didn't have parents who feared the Lord, so they never knew what that was to have a refuge. So they're running around demanding their college give it to them. Right? Um, they've, they've never known that kind of refuge. They've never had parents with strong confidence. They, they just... The fear of the Lord is a fountain of life that one may turn away from the snares of death. Um, fascinating. Um, a fountain of life. Where, what, where, what kind of language is that? You guys heard that language anywhere else in Scripture? Okay, John 7. What were you going to say? And John 4. There's a sense in which um, if you remember, Christ, Christ is the wisdom of God, and he is the one who gives water to the thirsty that they'll, they'll never, that, you know, well, eternally quench their thirst. Or John 7, that there are rivers of living water that pour out of his heart, um, which, is in, which is incredible language given what's happening in Ezekiel, right? In other words, he's the temple and the rivers that, feed, if you will, or, or nurture um, the land or the people are coming out of his own heart. Um, all right, so 
Look at Proverbs 15. We'll just pick up a couple others. Um, And look at verse 16 and 17. Um, Just to get at a couple other ones. There's tons of them here on on your mouth, but you guys have heard a lot of those before. I just look at verse 16. Better is a little with the fear of the Lord than great treasure and trouble with it. Man, isn't that true? Better is a, notice this, better is a dinner of herbs. In other words, you know, you think about a dinner of herbs. I haven't watched the show Parks and Recreation. Do you guys know this show? What's the name of the guy who's like, um, tries to be super manly and wants to eat meat all the time? Ron Swanson, thank you. I saw a clip on YouTube my kid sent me where he goes into a restaurant and they put a salad in front of him. And he says, they, he said, what's this? And they said, that's your, that's your, you know, like your appetizer, your before, like the beginning of your dinner, your starter meal kind of thing. And he said, no, this is the food that my food eats, right? <laughs> Pointing at the salad. And I, I remember dying laughing. But that's essentially this idea, a dinner of herbs, a dinner of herbs, a dinner of, of the food that your food eats, right? No, notice what he says, better is a, a, a dinner of herbs where love is than a fattened ox and hatred with it. A hot-tempered man stirs up strife, but he who is slow to anger quiets contention. You guys have seen all of this, haven't you? Some sense in life, you've seen this all play out. Look at Proverbs 15.33. The fear of the Lord, notice this language just keeps coming up. The fear of the Lord is instruction and wisdom, and humility comes before honor. Um, or drop down to Proverbs 16.6. By steadfast love and faithfulness, iniquity um, is atoned for, and by the fear of the Lord, one turns away from evil. You, you notice you're hearing this kind of constant emphasis on the fear of the Lord. Um, but I want to turn to these, these Proverbs in 16 through 22 briefly. If the other ones were like the antithesis Proverbs, in other words, these Proverbs of antithetical sayings, now in 16 through 22, you're really looking at um, sayings of God and King. Um, and what do I mean by that? There, there are these Proverbs, if you will, that are, that are spoken by God and, and, and in a sense... Um, on the Lord and, and sayings focused on the king. Because remember, there's a king. Who's the king? Who's writing these? Solomon. Okay, and the king is mediating God's rule, or at least he's supposed to be mediating God's rule in accordance with his commands. Okay, you guys remember that? Um, now, um, then there are sayings that intersect between the two. That's Proverbs 16 through 1 through 15. And then you go on in 16, 16 and following, uh, there are sayings for us all. Sayings for us all. Now, I'm going to point that out because um, William Van Gemmeren, I think, very helpfully points out, then I put a quote from him here, the wise are to enter the domain of kings and know that their plans, ways, works, righteousness, and steps are in the Lord's hands. In other words, there are these proverbs of God and king but the wise are, in a sense, are to enter the domain of the king. They're to kind of come into the king's stead and, and walk in the same way he's to walk as one whose plans, ways, works, righteousness, and steps are in the Lord's hands. 
Um, and so that's, we're going to see those, this kind of intersection. But look at, let's look at the sayings, focus on the Lord first. Proverbs 16, 1 through 7. The plans of the heart belong to man, but the answer of the tongue is from the Lord. Now, by the way, is this telling you man shouldn't plan? What's it telling you? He does plan. It's even wise for him to plan. You're going to see that in other places. It's even a wise thing to plan. But what's the, what, what's the, the but there? What's the contrast? What's that? Yeah, the answer is, is, is of, the to- of the tongue is from the Lord. So you can plan your ways, but what? Yeah, what, the Lord is going to do what he's going to do. And so even your plans, you know, you're, you're holding them like this. I'm making the plans I think are wise, and I'm holding them with an open hand. Because I have no idea what the Lord's going to do. Right? So we, we really struggle with this. Because we make our plans, and the Lord um, brings in things to interrupt them. Um, whatever those, those things are. I have my career mapped out, and then God comes in and does something that I despise, that kills that career, um, and now I'm doing something else. That wasn't my plan, right? So he says, the plans of the heart belong to man, but the answer of the tongue is from the Lord. We, we have no, so you can do that in a lot of ways. I, I had my life planned, I married this lovely woman, and then she dies. Or I had this child we were raising to honor the Lord, and the child turns from the Lord and rebels, Right, you, you, can go, you can go on a list of the ways in which our plans are interrupted. Um, we can talk about the small stuff, like I was trying to get there at this time and I hit every red light on the way there, right? And that, that sort of stuff get, causes frustration and road rage or whatever. But he's talking about things that are much more global than that, like just much bigger life issues. You really, you make your plans. Um, this same thing can happen in business, Right? The man is planning out the future of the business, and it does not go that way. So you think about this particularly is true, particularly well understood in an agrarian society. Why is that? What did you say? Rain? Yeah, they have no control of the elements. Right? They can... They can, they can till the land and they can work the land and they can sow their seed and they can do all they can, but they have no control over the elements, right? Um, so they make their plans, but the answer is from the Lord. Um, all right, we'll keep going. All the ways of a man are pure in his own eyes. Isn't that the truth? That's why I said no one lies to you better than you do because you believe your own lies uh, because all the ways of a man are pure in his own eyes. But the Lord weighs the spirit. In other words, the Lord will judge at some point. Um, and there are times where you're pretty confident you're not guilty of sin, and, but you're sort of open to it. Paul applies this. You guys know what Paul applies this um, proverb? Um, he actually believes he is innocent of things he's being charged of in, in Corinth. So keep your hand there and look over at 1 Corinthians 4. And you'll see uh, an application of this proverb. First Corinthians 4. This is how one um, 
should regard us as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Moreover, it is required of a steward that he be found trustworthy or faithful. Now look what it says in verse 3. 1 Corinthians 4 verse 3. But with me it's a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by any human court. In fact, I do not even judge myself. For, in other words, they've been, they've been judging him. If you guys read First and Second Corinthians, there's quite a few charges coming Paul's way. But he says, I, it's really small for me to be judged by you or any human court. In fact, I do not even judge myself, for I'm not aware of anything against myself. Now, now I, want you, I want you to hear this. Um, again, all the ways of a man are pure in his own eyes, right? But the Lord weighs the spirit. So he says, I'm not even aware of anything against myself, but I am not thereby acquitted. I can't think of any of the things I've done that are wrong, like any of the things you're charging me of that I've actually, there's no sin I've actually committed here that I'm aware of. But I'm not thereby acquitted. It is the Lord who judges me. Therefore, do not pronounce judgment before the time before the Lord comes who will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart. Then each one will receive his commendation from God. What's he saying? I'm not, like, you're making these charges against me. I'm not aware, as far as I can tell, that any of them are true. And I'm not going to sit here um, trying to, you know, wallow in uh, self-reflection until I can figure out if maybe some of them are true. As far as I know, I'm innocent of these charges. But that doesn't mean I'm thereby acquitted because God will judge me on that great day. In other words, I may get to heaven and find out that I was in fact wrong on some things I didn't think I was. He's just kind of open-minded about that. Um, all right. But there, by the way, if you're pretty confident you're innocent of charges, there's no reason to navel gaze until you can find some guilt just because people are making charges. Right? That's what Paul's saying. Pretty confident I'm innocent of these charges. I'm not going to sit here and navel gaze until I find, figure out a way that I was guilty. Um, as far as I know, I'm not, but I'll stand before the Lord and find out. I could be wrong, right? Because uh, he knows for sure. All right. Um, commit your work, verse 3, 16, Proverbs 16. Commit your work to the Lord and your plans will be established. The Lord has made everything for its purpose, even the wicked for the day of trouble. Everyone who is arrogant in heart is an abomination of the Lord. Be assured, he will not go unpunished. Do you notice you're not getting the antitheses anymore? Right? By steadfast love and faithfulness, iniquity is atoned for, but by the fear of the Lord, one turns away from evil. Or sorry, and by the fear of the Lord, one turns away from evil. When a man's ways please the Lord, he makes even his enemies to be at peace with him. Um, now we're going to turn to these kind of folk sayings focused on the king. Better as a little righteous as a little with righteousness than great revenues with injustice. The heart of man plans his way, but the Lord establishes his steps. This will come up later. The, the heart of the king is in the, the hand of the Lord, and he turns it wherever he wills. Um, right? So you plan your ways, but the Lord establishes the steps. His, his, your, your heart is in his hand. He turns it wherever he wills. By the way, that's true of any, any leader. Um, and they say in America, well, does that mean Gavin Newsom's heart is in the hand of the Lord? Yes. Does that mean Joe Biden's heart is in the hand of the Lord? He turns it wherever he goes. Yes. 
Um, but I, I think more importantly in the in American constitutional republic, it means the heart of the people are in the hand of the Lord. Because we're the ones who appoint leaders, actually, if you look at our constitution, the people are the rulers. The people are the rulers. According to the American constitution, right? This is a government by the people and for the people, right? You guys know that, okay? And of the people. We are the rulers. We've granted the government particular um, powers by, co- by covenant, called the Constitution. We've granted to them particular powers. They don't have any powers not granted to them by con- the Constitution. That's how we form this country. And so the people are its self-rule in that sense, right? Um, by Constitution. That's, that's what makes passages like Romans 13 particularly sticky in America, right? Because you don't have an emperor who just tells you how it's going to be. So obey your rulers. Well, who's that? Well, the people. Well, how, how so? Well, they gave you a document called Constitution. And so we, we, we formed a government together um, with particular powers. And, and here's why I bring this point up. Because the people choose these leaders. And, and so when you say, how could America choose this leader or that leader? Or how could California choose this leader or that leader? Remember, the heart of, of the king is in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he wills. Um, the heart of the people is in his hand. Right? Um, it's in his hand. If he wants to judge us, he will. When we turn from the Lord, it says we're given up to a depraved mind. So look at it and you think, what kind of nut jobs make these decisions? Those with depraved minds. <laughs> that, that's just, you guys know it's true. You look around and you go, well, well, what is all this? It's just the judgment of God. The judgment of God on fools. Right? Um, well, yeah, Lincoln does, actually. If you want to read a, a, a inaugural addresses of presidents, Lincoln's second inaugural is worth reading. Um, all right, so... He goes on, he's going to go on, look at, look at verse 10 through 15, I'm going to see the intersection between the powers of God and king. An oracle is on the lips of a king, but his mouth does not sin in judgment. A just balance and scales are the Lord's, all the weights in the bag are his work. It is an abomination to kings to do evil, for the throne is established by righteousness. Righteous lips are the delight of a king, and he loves him who speaks what is right. A king's wrath is a messenger of death, and a wise man will appease it. In the light of a king's face there is life, and his favor is like the clouds that bring the spring rain. So you're starting to see this. Now he's going to go on. How much better to get wisdom than gold, to get understanding than to be, to be chosen, is to be chosen rather than silver. The highway of the upright turns aside from evil. Whoever guards his way preserves life. Pride goes before destruction, a haughty spirit before the fall, um, before a fall, etc., etc., um, it's better to be of lowly spirit with the poor than divide the spoil with the proud. You guys are noticing, so you have these, these proverbs um, that really are foc- sayings focused on the Lord, then focused on the king, and then it sent, tends to move to all the people. So there's kind of a focus on the Lord, focus on the king, and there's sort of a mixture of the two, and then it moves to, to the rest of us. Um, that goes all the way through Proverbs um, 22. Proverbs 22. You, you, let, let me just pick out a couple and then we'll close. I'll let you ask some questions and we'll close. L- look at Proverbs 
Um, look, look at Proverbs sixteen twenty. It's it's an important one. Whoever gives thought to the word will discover good, and blessed is he who trusts in the Lord. You guys hear that? You give thought to the word, you'll discover good. Um, blesses you trust in the Lord. The wise of heart is called discerning, and sweetness of speech increases persuasiveness. Right? Look at verse 23. The heart of the wise makes his speech judicious and adds persuasiveness to his lips. Gracious words are like a honeycomb, sweetness of the soul, and health to the body. Look at verse 28. A dishonest man spreads strife, and a whisperer separates close friends. Isn't that the truth? Um, 17.9. Whoever covers an offense seeks love, but he who repeats a matter separates close friends. To cover an offense is to not spread it around. Right? Um, but, but you repeat the matter, you separate close friends. Um, look at verse 17, Proverbs 17.17. 17. So a lot of us talk about this loyalty. Um, a friend loves at all times and a brother is born for adversity. Um, look at verse 27 of 17. Whoever restrains his words has knowledge and he who has a cool spirit is a man of understanding. Even a fool who keeps silent is considered wise. When, his, when he closes his lips, he's deemed intelligent. <laughs> okay. uh, look at, look at 18.2. A fool takes no pleasure in understanding but only in expressing his opinion. He, he speaks but he doesn't listen. Um, look at verse 6 of, of Proverbs 18. A fool's lips walk into a fight, and his mouth invites a beating. Isn't that true? A fool's mouth is his ruin, and his lips are a snare to his soul. The words of a whisper are like delicious morsels. They go down to the inner parts of the body. Look at verse 13 of 18. If one gives an answer before he hears, it is his folly and shame. Look at verse 21 of 18. Death and life are in the power of the tongue, and those who love it will eat its fruits. Verse 24, a man of many companions may come to ruin, but there is a friend who sticks closer than a brother. The man of many companions is, is, is referencing the, the crowd pleaser. He has a lot of companions because he's, he's, he's a flatterer, he's a pleaser. That's why he might come to ruin. There's a friend who sticks closer than a brother. 19, go down to 1916. Whoever keeps the commandment keeps life, but he who despises his ways will die. Um, verse 20, listen to advice and accept instruction that you may gain wisdom in the future. Verse 23 of 19, the fear of the Lord leads to life, and whoever has it rests satisfied. He will not be visited by harm. Um, you, you, we can just keep repeating this. You guys are hearing the theme. Look at Proverbs 22, verse 4. The reward for humility and, the, and fear of the Lord is riches and honor and life. You, you hear what he's getting after there? Um, th- this is kind of the, a, a, a kind of summary statement of all the things he's been saying when I say it, that the fear of the Lord um, sort of provides peace and hope, stability. This idea, the, the reward for humility and the fear of the Lord is riches and honor and life. Um, 
this is what we see with the godly men in Scripture who are blessed in that way. So we think about Abraham who fears the Lord. Does, he get, does his name get honored? Yeah, that's part of the promise in Genesis 12. Your name will be honored. You're not seeking honor yourself. You're trusting the Lord, and so your name is going to be honored, right? The opposite of what's happening at Babel. Does he get riches? Yes, he's enriched. And by the way, does he get life? Not only eternal life, but we get, you hear the emphasis in Genesis that he lived many years or his days were many. He had a long life. Um, you're picking up here on uh, these promises of the covenant that, are, uh, that Abraham is paradigmatic of, right? His name is honored, he gets riches, and he, his, his days are many. We're told that in Genesis. That is all typological. You guys know what I mean by typological? What do I mean by that? Yeah, it's kind of a foreshadowing or a pointing forward of, of the fulfillment of all of that. Where are riches and honor and life ultimately found? In Christ. So what do you have in Christ? Your name is honored. Those who honor my name before men, I'm going to honor theirs in heaven, right? Okay? Riches. You have, if you're a co-heir of Christ, you have all the riches of God in Christ Jesus. Life. If you trust in Christ, you have a life abundant, eternal. Do you guys, you guys follow that? Okay. Um, all right. Any questions? I'm going to keep pushing you back to Genesis and forward to the New Testament because you're going to keep seeing the same kind of language coming all the way through. Um, all the way through. All right. No, no questions? Good. Yes, sir. Um, I'll tell you what Ian Hamilton told me, because Ian Hamilton's one of the wiser men I know, godly, wise man who loves the word, loves the Lord. Just FaceTimed me last week and told me he was reading James Dalzell's book, All That Is In God. Um, he was like, oh, yeah, I'm reading it. I said, oh, good. Um, but we, uh, he, I asked him about preaching Proverbs, and he says, well, you know, I, I, essentially he at some point told me he was somewhat loath to preach Proverbs because he felt like he, he didn't have the, the wisdom necessary to preach the book yet. And I thought, oh no. <laughs> and I understood what he was getting at. It's hard to find good preaching in Proverbs. Really hard. Um, there, Charles Bridges has a very good commentary on Proverbs that's put out in the Banner of Truth series. Um, I think Charles Bridges is quite wise on a number of levels. So if you want to read a comp, he wrote also on the Christian ministry, that book, but, um, he has a commentary on Proverbs that Banner puts out. Banner of Truth has these older commentary series, like the Geneva commentary series or something like that. Um, that one's, I think, pretty helpful. Um, but I, if, if Sinclair Ferguson preaches through the Proverbs, I'd probably go listen to him or somebody like that. I would want to find it from an older, godly, faithful man who's preached for a long time, to be honest with you. Um, that's where I would go looking. 
Proverbs is one of those books. It's, I've taught it in like a college group or high school group, but I'm, I'm a bit hesitant to preach it in, in our main service at this point in life. That, that would sound weird, but um, it's not an easy book. It's not an easy book. Um, and I think there's a kind of richness and texture that comes from a godly man who's walked with the Lord for decades and decades um, in the teaching of Proverbs that, that I, don't, I don't know that um, I'm equipped to bring to the table yet, that kind of richness and texture. I'd, I'd like to think I, w- I am. Don't, don't get me wrong. No one is competent for these things, right? It is the Spirit of God as ministers of the New Covenant that makes us competent for any of it. But, but there is a sort of richness and texture. If you sit with an old man who's walked with, I mean by an old man, an old godly man who sat, who's walked with the Lord for decades, there's a kind of wisdom. You guys never ever noticed that? that? That doesn't come out of younger men. Um, and there's a richness and texture to it. So I would look at somebody who's an older preacher like a Sinclair Ferguson or an Eric Alexander or Ian Hamilton or somebody like that, if you can find them. Um, prob- probably I wouldn't look at Piper only because it'll just be like all, all kinds of emotions all over the place the whole time. Um, and so you're, you're, you know, he probably wouldn't be the go-to because every proverb would be about joy. Um, so I would probably find a different source than that um, of, among the older guys. I don't know if Alistair Begg has put out anything yet. Um, Alistair Begg did? So he did some, he did some different pro- Proverbs selections. He might be good to listen to on that. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, uh, yeah, he followed, Solomon followed it at periods of his life, right? Um, that supernatural wisdom given to him. Um, I don't claim to have any of that. Um, I mean, supernatural in as much as the Spirit of God is, any wisdom I do have is from him and not from myself, but, but not in the sense of revelatory where I'm writing scripture. Um, so anyway, the, um, I, I might look at Bridges' commentary first, though, and then I would probably look at some of the older guys who are preaching contemporaneous that are good. Um, because Proverbs, and the reason I say I'd look at some contemporaneous stuff, some contemporary stuff, is because Proverbs are these kinds of biblical truths that are being taught in, the, in, a, in a kind of cultural context. Remember I told you guys that? And so if you go read stuff from 200 years ago, it's still like Charles Bridges stuff, it's still going to be helpful. I don't, remember how many, I don't know how Charles Bridges, his commentary is, but it's, it's, over, it's well over 100 years. Uh, it's going to be very helpful and in, in many regards immediately applicable. Um, but... There, there are some things we're wrestling with now that are just things they didn't wrestle with then, right? In human relations. Particularly in this current moment is the rise of the new religion, right? Which Abraham Kuyper talked about probably 100 years ago. In the 1920s, Abraham Kuyper sort of predicted, I think, the moment we're in quite well when he just, he talked about the fact that Christianity as the dominant religion in the world, um, especially in the West uh, where we live, um, you know, Christendom's been dying for probably 500 years. Um, it's dead now, thoroughly dead, right, um, in America. Um, Kuiper said about 100 years ago that was coming, 
And he said it was being replaced with a new religion. And the new religion took on one of two sides, radical individualism, where every man does what is right in his own eyes. I, I get determined for me. Um, that's the new definition of liberty. I'm an individual with individual rights and I get to do whatever I want. That's not the original definition of liberty. Liberty was once the, the freedom to do what is right and good, just, not the freedom to do whatever you want. Um, but that's changed. And, um, and the other side of that, Kuiper talked about, is statism. Those are going to be the, the sort of two sides of that new religion. Rule by the government, you know, kind of a statism, all trust in government, um, or, or radical individualism. And we see both those things convening, don't we, right now? That, those are the competing religions. So um, I get to be whoever I want to be, and you can't tell me. Right? You know we used to imprison people for homosexual acts? You guys know that? Um, but in fact, the first charismatic, the first Pentecostal, um, Charles Parham, was imprisoned in Texas in 1907, I believe, for sodomy. Um, he started the Pentecostal, modern Pentecostal movement. Not a good start. Um, but he was imprisoned for sodomy in, in Texas. That, that was something we did for some time. We, we can't imagine the idea of imprisoning someone for sinful acts now, like, unless it's like murder or a child abuse, something like that. Like that just shocks us now because we've embraced, um, I'm not saying we should have done that. That's not my point. My point is, my point is that seems so foreign to us because radical individualism is just the order of the day. I get to be whoever I want to be, do whatever I want to do. And the, the flip side of that is um, our trust is in government because I need the state to protect protect that and to shut up anybody who tries to stop me, right? Um, it's kind of a weird convergence, but it's the, it's the new religion. That, that religion didn't predominate 200 years ago or 300 years ago. Christendom did. So if you read Western commentaries, they're not dealing with some of the contemporary issues that we're dealing with, right? When I say Christendom, I don't mean Christianity, like gospel-loving Christianity. I mean, I mean Christendom, like Christianity was basically the, the preferred religion or worldview, if you will, of the day. It was sort of the default. We were all working from that basic foundation, though not everybody was a born-again believer. That's not my point, right? Um, so I, that's, that's changed. Christendom is dead. You knew that when Abergefell v. Hodges happened, right? When you, when you had gay marriage become the law of the land and... and Name the Republican legislator out there who's demanding we overturn gay marriage. I, you can name all kinds of them on abortion. Name the county clerk who refused to uh, sign gay marriage licenses. There's one, a female. Yeah. Um, in the whole of America... Like, you know, for the first time in human history, we said a man can marry a man, and there was like a collective yawn, right? That tells you Christendom is dead. Christendom is dead. Um, it's no longer the order of the day. The order of the day is radical individualism and statism, which seem like completely opposite things, but somehow they converge <laughs> almost always. And, and that's, that's the religion of the day. So I, that's why we all feel the... 
we all feel the uncomfortable convulsions of our society and culture because we've realized, oh, Christendom is dead, and we don't know what to do with that, um, and it's freaking us all out. What I would tell you is um, that's a new, that's probably new in human history, um, by the, not in ever, but in the last 1,700 years in the West. So we're going through a period that's probably not happened in 1,700 years in the West. So it's a little shocking for everybody. So I'd tell you, probably find older godly men who are contemporarily alive who are preaching Proverbs because they're probably going to pick up on some of this in ways that, that men 200 years ago didn't even have to think about. Right? You don't find any confessional statements from 400 years ago that have to tell you um, that a biological male is in fact a man. Or, that mar- or, or they'll have to say, of course marriage is not between a man and a man. Nobody has to wrestle with that. Right? Or that you're free to do whatever you want with your body. By the way, I'm just going to say this to Christians just as a total side note. If you're out there arguing, I should be free to do whatever I want with my body um, so I shouldn't have to be vaccinated. And then you're, the, don't, don't be making that argument. Right? Um, that's, that's, that's not a Christian argument. That's an argument of a different religion. That's the argument of a different religion. Um, if you want to argue against the vaccine, fine, but do not use worldly arguments, right, in that sense. Um, don't, don't default to that religion, because that's the religion that's killing us, not the one that's going to help us out. Um, all right, let me, let me pray. Father, we're thankful for um, the time to be in the Word together, to... Um, learn to fear you. We pray that your spirit would apply your word to us and that we would fear you, that we would walk in your commandments, that we would have um, our souls anchored in heaven with Christ um, by the spirit through trusting in him, that we would um, really find ourselves secured on that rock, having hope and peace, um, knowing the eternal life that is ours. Uh, Help us to, to fear you and to keep your commandments. In Jesus' name, amen.